Hey folks, welcome back to our epic two-parter on Low Kim's Hardcore. We are once again joined by Melissa. Let's get into it. Yeah, what the beauty industry was promoting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I think that's no, that's specifically image to, to to go a little bit further than that. Talking about sexuality, like Queen of Rap, that title was not just because of her actual skills, but because she seemed to attack the genre with many of the same tools and approaches as men. Mm-hmm. As I said, it's a notoriously confrontational, mm-hmm. mis- misogynistic, sexualized genre that. It really prides itself on bravado and yeah. boastfulness. Well, um, I guess you know she was the first high-profile rapper to flip the image of objectification. You know, yeah, and it was a, it was a shock to the mainstream. You know, when especially and and importantly when coupled with her talent, because she was obviously very very talented. So the fact that she had such a strong sexualized image mm-hmm. made her a really potent product in that marketplace regardless of who you feel was driving that product yeah she, she was you could say she was owning it and weaponizing it and celebrating her like sexuality in a way that no female artist was doing at all in that fucking sphere so like spoiler alert i've got far more conflicted thoughts about that but um I'll, I'll get to those in a second the positive thoughts good things i've seen written about that um you know lil Kim's music catalogue features undertones of sex-positive feminism and the importance of female pleasure instead of the man as the dominant priority. Um, Dazed and Confused considered her, quote, the first high-profile female rapper to flip the script on female objectification in the rap industry. Enemies editor Jordan Bassett said she outfilthed the male rappers at every yeah. turn. Uh, by the way, I noticed that Jordan Bassett had also been quoted as saying that hardcore is the greatest rap record of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, but during her early career several rising female hip hop artists modelled themselves after her stylistically uh, Complex put Hardcore at number 80 on their list of the best rap albums of the 90s by the way not the best female rap mm-hmm. albums of the 90s the best rap albums of the 90s thanks and said quote when Lil Kim released her debut album women in hip hop finally had options paths to follow and models she was the raunchiest woman you ever heard on the mic the Village Voice writer, Joan Morgan, considered that the album, quote, transformed her into a cultural icon and opined that it put an emphasis on sex appeal, looks and packaging as a priority for female rappers. That's an interesting one, because that's actually quite an ambiguous comment, uh, that it put an emphasis on sex appeal, looks and packaging as a priority for female rappers. Starts as a compliment, but ends up as something a bit more complex, I think. Yeah, so it's interesting to think about that in context as well, because the most successful female rapper is Lauren Hill who didn't have any of that mm-hmm. potentially is she the most successful yeah. I mean she's definitely sold the most records for sure we mentioned Lil Kim's outfit at the 1999 MTV Musical Awards um, the Washington Post said that that incident as you mentioned solidified her image of sexual fearlessness and her career as a fashion trendsetter She since modelled for Versace Baby Fat Candies Greg Thomas, an English professor at Syracuse University, began teaching the course Hip Hop Issue Queen Bitch Lyricism 101. <laughs> Lil Kim herself was a guest speaker at that school, at that class. Uh, professor Thomas considers Lil Kim lyrics, quote, the art with the most profound sexual politics I've ever seen anywhere. However, critiques abound, both of Kim herself and of the kind of third wave of feminism she's maybe retrospectively folded into now uh, even just talking about that course a guy called David Horowitz criticises that as academic degeneracy and decline um, maybe a bit more poignant is uh, the criticism and reaction of C. Dolores Tucker, C. Dolores Tucker is famous for this phrase gangster porno rap mm-hmm. 
Um, she was an African-American civil rights campaigner, one-time Secretary of State for Pennsylvania. She had a long history in the civil rights movement, including participating in the 65 Selma and Montgomery marches alongside Martin Luther King Jr. And also she raised a lot of funds for the NAACP. Uh, Tucker dedicated much of the last few years of her life to condemning sexually explicit lyrics in rap and hip-hop tracks, citing a concern that the lyrics were misogynistic and threatened the moral foundation of the African-American community. In one stockholders meeting a Warner Brothers Records activist, C. Dolores Tucker criticised the label for, quote, producing this filth, referring to the perceived graphic sexual content of Lil' Kim's lyrics and labelled them gangster porno rap, uh, iconically. Um, Tucker went on to pick at stores that sold rap music and bought stock in Sony, Time Warner and other companies in order to protest hip-hop at the shareholder meetings. She was called narrow-minded by a lot of rappers who often mentioned her in lyrics. Mm. Lil' Kim referenced her in a track called Rockin' It. Me fall off under one condition They got to find my body dumped in the sewer Black and bluer underneath horse manure See Dolores T. Spoor, I never knew her, I'm good Like milk mixed with Kahlua Intimidated by the songs I made You stalk like... I think she says, see Dolores T. Screw her, I never knew her Eminem goes a bit further, it referenced her in a song called Rap Game by D12, saying, uh, tell that C. Dolores Tucker slut to suck a dick. <laughs> um, can only assume he's enjoying the fucking irony uh, of the comment. I mean, C. Dolores Tucker can obviously be portrayed as a bit of a prude there. Uh, she's maybe a, a slightly more credible alternative to Tipper Gore and the PMRC, whose moral outrage led to you know the parental advisory sticker and them criticising everybody from Dead Kennedys to NWA. With Kim, uh, it's more nuanced uh, in the senses that she represented sort of liberation and empowerment in the moment. <sighs> Aside from the debate over what control she actually had regarding her image, it's also interesting to look at exactly what was achieved. I think in terms of the broader issues around image, lyricism and black female sexual empowerment, when I was looking at this, I was seeking to use the voices of black women in the discussion wherever possible, because in case you hadn't noticed, (laughs) I'm a honky. (laughs) And so, yeah, so as I said earlier on, I spent a fair bit of time watching commentary on this from people who I think are taken pretty seriously. Can't pretend to be an authentic representation of the prevailing consensus of the community, but I can at least say that these are authentic and primary accounts based on people's experience. One that I would cite is by a, a YouTube vlogger called T Noir. Do you know her? No. Mm-hmm. Okay, so she's a really good vlogger based around music and issues affecting African American and black women. Um, there's one video in particular called Hypersexuality and the Perfect Pussy which is a really interesting uh, kind of long-form discussion of this. It's a great YouTube channel. I, I thoroughly recommend you go and hear it from her directly. She introduces this video uh, describing growing up with uncertainty around how to fully embrace our own sexuality, especially against, uh, as Marissa was referring to, that sexual renaissance for women in popular culture around the turn of millennium. To her, the messaging at that young age seemed to be that sex, when discussed openly and explicitly, was seen increasingly as liberation in itself. But then she began to question that. Was that actually liberation? In her words, uh, whilst there were some outward signs of change, quote, everything deserves reanalysis. 
one of the first things that she really outlined that I thought was really interesting was that the composition of the hypersexual black woman performer is simple. And this is the list she gives. She's young, late 20s, never over 40. Quote, her body is either surgically modified or naturally proportioned in a way that appeals to the black male gaze. Perky breast, small waist, fat ass. Quote, fashion is flamboyant and largely influenced by black sex worker aesthetics. Quote, nails long enough to cut a bitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, her lifestyle should depict, quote, opulence, indulgence, excess and shameless consumerism. And quote, she fearlessly defends herself in the hypersexual market and her most powerful weapon is her language. And then, so she, from that point, she, she looks at like three uh, contemporary examples to explore them in a bit more detail. Now, we mentioned them at the start, Nicki Minaj, Megan Thee Stallion and Cardi B. Nicki Minaj was, uh, quote, a powerful reminder that a woman's sexuality if used properly could bring her status and money and you know she seemed to prosper as a result what could I do to kick it out how about I come along your dirt and I lick it out I mean it's something so funny when it gets out I like to play with it squeeze it like a stress ball he say like to hear the sound I'm serpent it but then she'd given an interview with Elle where she seemed to criticize women who use sexuality for profit now, this is T-Noir saying she was noticing cracks in the veneer of how sincere some of this messaging was from these artists. Megan Thee Stallion, particularly due to her very prominent black features and characteristics, was something of a symbol of self-assurance, refusing to have her own sexuality qualified by external opinions. I'm that bitch. Been that bitch, still that bitch. Will forever be that bitch. Forever be that bitch. <laughs> yeah. I- but then did an interview with Hot 97, who we've mentioned a few times now, where she actually refuted her own promiscuity, saying, quote, she got to keep the mileage low. Again, kind of seen that as like a little bit of a weird inconsistency, given the nature of a lot of her lyricism. And then Cardi B seemed to profess to always work to uplift fellow female musicians, but then engaged in songs that played up to that girl fight narrative, including measuring one's own attractiveness and wealth against others. This is Tinoir, this is not me. Uh, she felt there was like a little bit of insincerity manifesting in some of these acts that made her really question their underlying motives. Yeah, I can see why. Yeah, superficially all three present as something of an example uh, of young African-American women looking to assert her sexuality, especially within that male-dominated sphere of entertainment. But deeper examination presented in Tinoir's words, evidence of hypocrisy and the sense of, quote, a veneer of liberation uh, as these performers play out their sexualized roles within the context of a culture that still penalizes true female sexual liberation. Um, she's, she then goes on to say, it's still considered perfectly normal for these performers to be bragging about their sexual aptitude in one breath whilst protecting a reputation of angelic purity or at the very least shaming women who don't. All three artists seem to have sort of pulled back from the edge when their character threatens to truly upset 
or threaten more conservative traditional notions and male-orientated ideas of good womanhood. She then asks, has slut-shaming actually decreased as much as we'd like to think? Saying, the costuming of sex workers has had the fashion world in a chokehold for decades. And she mentions the irony in how those fashions, which were the uniforms of the poorest sex workers, the most vulnerable people in society in a lot of cases, have thus now transitioned over to the richest celebrities and the richest socialites in a form of cultural appropriation, you know? Is that the case to the same extent with Kim, given what we said about her very early past and doing what it took to get by? I think that's a harder case to make. I don't think she can have the same accusations of that appropriation levelled at her, but certainly a lot of artists can. To illustrate that point, for example, she uses a rapper called Sweetie. Do you know her? No, I'm sure Dave would. I think she's doing pretty well. Um, so, uh, sorry, I'll say that again. I think she's doing pretty well. Because <laughs> clearly I know a lot about that. Who champions uh, pleaser shoes. Um, those are the shoes that are made famous by pole dancers and strippers. Largely for reasons, I mean, obviously they're about heels, but for reasons of practicality to do with the support they give you when you're doing those dances to protect your ankles and things. But Sweetie also has lyrics shaming sex work, such as, you the type that's fucking for rent, you a thought. So real inconsistency of thought in there. And a lot of people are superimposing some very high ideals onto some of these artists. Oh, they're so progressive, they're so liberating, they're so this. You know, Tino is really questioning... Are they though? Are we just seeing that because that's what we want to see? She calls those instances of dissonance uh, promiscuously modest oxymoronic images depicting a nucleus of values that are pretty damn ancient and when unchallenged can represent the total opposite of liberation. And then she finishes on that point. Why don't we just be honest and say that in this hypersexual market, it is safer for women to oscillate through this vulgar virgin pendulum because it allows them the grace to cause men just enough discomfort so that they feel empowered as women while still aligning close enough with male values so they don't die without a husband. It is interesting to hear somebody who initially felt very empowered on the surface actually say, am I actually being empowered by this movement at all? What is this teaching me? What are the lessons I'm taking away? I think that self-righteousness is visible um, in Lil' Kim's lyrics. Not necessarily righteousness, but maybe um, one upmanship and just constantly contradicting herself. Yeah, we're going to talk about it when we just dive into the album itself. Um, but I cannot agree more with that sentiment. So another thing that she refers to, which obviously we're going to spend a fair bit of time on when we're going through the album, is language. Mm -hmm. And the the change in language for prominent female acts has been significant. And Lil' Kim was clearly a pioneer in that sense. Pussy is an essential tool to her brand. Noir again asks how the notion of reclaimed language, such as bitch and hoe, is one thing, but has that in any way undermined the practice of placing value on a woman based on her own sexuality? She suggests that this discussion gets into an area of feminism that is frankly too unpalatable for most. She, she describes it as hairy armpit feminism, mm-hmm. you know, where bad bitch, boss bitch feminism is just frankly more fun and readily consumable mm-hmm. like if, if I'm going to reduce it a bit and maybe call back to your Queen Latifah comment, is Queen Latifah the sort of end point of like a second wave feminism and Lil' Kim retrospectively becoming like the early stages of this third wave where you could be this bad bitch, boss bitch 
Falmouth adopting these certain sort of male gaze characteristics, but then marketing them as being empowering. And there's an interesting schism there. You know, there is a big difference between Queen Latifah and, and Lil' Kim, and mm-hmm. then by exponentially so for the people that followed her. Um, Teen Mars continues, uh, sometimes it feels like we are so desperate to justify the things that make us feel good as women that we will try to bend and mould feminism or other movements of gender equity so that it works for us. We want feminism to come to us rather than us joining the movement. Just because something badass is happening involving women, especially our sexuality, it doesn't automatically make it a liberating political movement. It doesn't make it regressive either, but it deserves nuance and honest assessment of who it actually benefits and who it does not. And we've discussed this in the past, things like convenience feminism, commodity feminism, basically a capitalist construct that feigns protest to placate and profit from a certain demographic, but ultimately seems to have a bit of an emergency break that can be applied if it's in danger of actually affecting the status quo. So, you know, this music is threatening up to a point and then it's stopped from being any more threatening because it's not actually getting to the point of making men any less rich. You know, that's really it. Are men any worse off than they were before? I don't think so. I think they've played this system really, really well. Mm-hmm. And from Lil Kim's perspective, she always felt that the feminism label was a grey area for her. Basically, her, her exact words were, and the one thing that was always my main focus was that girls are somebody to speak for them at all times. And she felt as though she was being a voice for that at that time. It was never all about kill all men or men are horrible. And there are a lot of people who do that, as she says. But, you know, when she says, when I came in the game and she did that famous squat pose, so there was a lot of women hating on her. And she was just really surprised because she was like, well, this is fresh. You know, it was me. I was being sexy. I don't think I was being tasteless. I was being classy. I was being cute. And I was trying to bring something new that wasn't there at the time. I think that's a fairly, I don't know, that's from our own mouth. I, I'm pretty sure there is more to look into in that. From Certainly from my perspective, one of the things that kind of struck me about the record was it was like playing the men at their own game, you know. Um, and Which is really interesting that you mention that because that is the third theme yeah. that, that is really touched on here. Can I, can I stick a pin mm-hmm. in that? Just being one of the boys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, just to, to finish, one, one more thing on that last point. Khadija Mboy, uh, really good YouTube commentator as well, discusses the author Bell Hooks's description of Beyonce as a terrorist. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you know Bell Hooks, excellent uh, African-American feminist author and commentator. Uh, and Khadija describes her own initial response as kind of, no, she's getting freaky and talking about feminism, we can do both. But then she continues that, now looking back, I can understand better what Bell Hooks meant. Um, She looks at the real life consequences for women in a society where so many men in particular still interpret certain outfits as an invitation for sexual attention or worse. The women that are peddling this can afford to still have security. They're not walking down the street with their keys between their fingers. Why is that? Because whilst progress has been made, far too little has structurally changed. And why is that? In part because less threatening and more convenience-orientated forms of protest are being sold in place of actual protest. And who's behind that? And this is me, honky, coming to my conclusion. Ultimately, the male-orientated society that incentivizes these less threatening outlets for social rage uh, in extremely surreptitious and obfuscated ways. I mean, I think that male society rewards rebellion that can also make a lot of money 
and then quashes it as soon as it becomes dangerous. And the thing is, yes, the extent of that rebellion has perhaps moved on, but it's not yet moved on to the point where it's substantially changing anything. The message isn't going far enough. Mm -hmm. The protest isn't going far enough. It feels controlled to me, and it feels like it's probably controlled by the men that sit behind all of it, the men that run these companies, and it is overwhelmingly men Mm -hmm. that run these companies, media companies, record labels, especially in this context. These are not ultimately messages that men find threatening. Yeah, and they they don't change anything structurally. Yeah. Um, You you were making the point about, you know, and you said being one of the boys, another key observation, this going back to T-Noir, makes that so much uh, rhetoric, you know, lyrically and just generally around sexually explicit female rap seems to be focused on power dynamics, you know, albeit reversal from the traditional, including things like humiliation, mockery, disrespect, which is interesting because as human a sentiment as that might be, in that scenario, female empowerment seems to entail emulating and appropriating the worst aspects of male sexuality rather than striving for something better. There was a book in 1972 called Casualties of the Sex War written by a woman called Karen Durbin, and it's cited by both commentators here, T and Khadija. And it discusses the phenomenon of imitate the oppressor in the context of that kind of 1970s march towards liberation via casual sex, really. You know, the notion that casual sex represented freedom um, and how it actually claimed and nurtured many of the trends that the women's liberation movement had initially seemed to oppose. Mm -hmm. You know, quote, the freedom to treat men as sex objects as a political and emotional dead end. The point was not that women should become imitation men. And in agreement with that, uh, T. Noir says, quote, in rap and hip hop, sex is rarely centred on pleasure and rather attaches it to egotism and materialism. And we hear women in rap doing the same shit, imitating the attitudes and values of men during sex, which are stereotypically selfish aggressive and power seeking it doesn't guarantee women anything or safety or consideration or orgasms Uh, are we saying the ego boost we get from co-opting the misogynistic abuse of sex is good enough and the opportunity for a very select few of us to make money from it is also good enough because men are not hurting from this She's very moderate in this. I don't want to paint her as being totally negative. She's quite (laughs) nuanced, but she says, women's enjoyment does not have to be political. She acknowledges that being able to write about the bigger picture doesn't mean that you can't enjoy the song WAP. But aside from what's at the forefront, costumes and language, hardly any revolution is actually being made. And I think that's really true. Yeah. Yeah, Tricia Rose, who wrote um, a book called The Hip Hop Wars, um, has said something very similar. Um, she said how um, female rappers of that era are hustlers instead of victims, um, but the male empowering terms of hustling and victimizing and sexual domination as legitimate power ultimately remain intact. Yeah, which I think is very much um, in line with what you just said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also like the few women that do succeed, especially in that genre, um, oftentimes turn on one another. Yeah, like create that beef. Um, yeah, I really try to avoid that trope during this, but there is a fair amount of like setting women against women, and we go right back to that point where we were like, is it in the interests of Tupac and Sean Puffy Coombs mm-hmm. to actually just stir up more shit between these female rappers because it, it's it's good for business, mm-hmm. you know? An interesting take I had on you know on welcomes feminism uh, came from Feminista Jones. Have you ever heard of her? No. Michelle Taylor, she's a, a social worker, a writer, she writes exclusively about black feminism. She's written a really cool book called Reclaiming Our Space, How Black Feminism is Changing the World from the Tweets to the Streets, which is a pretty good title. Um, yeah, I've come, I've come across that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so she wrote an article about Little Kim, um, and particularly because she was around in the era as well in 1995, you know, and I'll quote large parts of this. 
So uh, in, in 1995, it was quite a time to be alive. Hip-hop culture was quickly becoming one of the United States' most lucrative exports and the children of black-powered revolutionaries, pimps, hustlers and slow-singing devotees of Martin Luther King and Jesus Christ had seemingly found a pathway to overcome all that. For young girls and women, our connection with and access to the nucleus of hip-hop power was often precarious. Of course, we were there since the beginning, a representation essentially fortified in the ultra-cool style of MC Sharrock. The beautification of Lady Pink, the clapbacks of Roxanne Shanty of Salt and Pepper, MC Light, Queen Latifah, they were showing that women were not more than just psychics of women, they were actually able to hold themselves down and they could embrace culture as their own and earn the respect of their peers, as was a hip-hop way. Unfortunately, there were those who were less enthusiastic about women being prominent fixtures in culture that was born out of a need for a revolution among black and brown underclass across the majority of American cities. Hip-hop found itself engorged with a rampant misogyny as the socially economically disenfranchised young men fought for some semblance of power. Mm. Um, Many of the most celebrated rap, rap lyricists, and still, I would say, most celebrated rap lyricists, write music which is incredibly abusive and has incredibly abusive suggestions on how to engage women. And not women, actually more just their bodies than anything else. Mm. Um, and the universal acceptability of these songs resulted in young people who were seeking inspiration and guidance as they matured into adulthood, absorbing these rather painful ideas and perpetrating them off wax. It became increasingly difficult for young women to believe that they were welcomed into this space and that their voice would be even heard, much less respected, in the sea of men working hard to assert their manhood for mainstream acceptance or validation. On one hand, to prove you were real, you had to keep up with the guys. And that meant everything from battling them in rap, rap ciphers to outselling them in records and outranking them in record charts. Many women in hip-hop found themselves minimised. Their outward feminine expression was essentially quashed. And it was quite often seen as a liability that negated one's authenticity in a culture where being quote-unquote real was all that one could rely on for credibility. On the lyrics, she says, um, lyrically, the women tend to stay neutral when it came to gender politics, occasionally dropping a song or two in there which affirmed their womanhood is equally as important as the political things we're talking about, you know, like Queen Latifah and stuff like that. Like, they wouldn't really talk about sexuality, they talk about, I guess, the streets and yeah. and their life and stuff like that. So make no mistake, Lil' Kim wasn't just a plus one. She was a central figure in her crew and she would ultimately become the most successful of her crew after Biggie. Whilst many female rappers made their entrance into the industry by being co-signed and promoted by notable figures and, and found themselves unable to make a real name for themselves afterwards, Lil' Kim would not be bound by being the only female in the crew. Hardcore and Notorious K.I.M. are required listening for anyone that wants the most basic understanding of how sex-positive, black feminist women certified their place in hip-hop history. And she actually makes this really interesting point as well. In 2005, she was convicted and sentenced, convicted and sentenced to one year for being loyal. Um, anyone from the streets knows that the only way to describe what happened when she lied to the grand jury about the details of a gunfight involving people that she cared about was that she was being loyal. And unlike the snitches in her crew, she was quote-unquote guaranteed to stay down and lived in that authenticity, unlike many in the culture who'd rapped about it but were not really about it. About it. Um, it's a really interesting article about how, I guess, how she frames Lil' Kim as being this person that was actually moving beyond being another one in the crew, you know, and, and, and living beyond, like, the male idea or the, the male kind of idea that you can be, you have to be one of us to be famous. And I think there's a lot of that in Lil' Kim's music, don't get me wrong, I think there's a lot of 
one-upmanship and try to be with the boys. But I think there's a little bit more nuance to it mm. compared to, I guess, people that are card to be in, in, in the Cayman Islands right now who are saying one thing and acting another way. Yeah, I mean, maybe... Maybe it's encouraging because she was definitely a step, she was definitely a change and I'm sure that for the generation of people that followed her, that is inspiring. So I doubt these things do happen in one generation. It's not that you go from zero to, you know, mm-hmm. having everything right mm-hmm. within one musical generation. I'm just, I think Tinoir's right to cast a little bit of doubt on whether the subsequent generation or generations are moving in a positive direction. Are they? You know, it's it's have they taken what Kim achieved, and I think she did really achieve something, albeit it was a limited, but mm-hmm. it was a huge achievement. Um, has that been now used and furthered in the same way to the same extent? And I'm not sure that it has. Hmm. Um, I think part of it could be down to the fact that she'd thought she'd fallen out of the zeitgeist as well. So what lessons can you really learn? I kind of feel like she'd done all she could do. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's like yeah. she, there's only so much that one person can change in one generation. It's pretty phenomenal mm-hmm. what she did achieve. I'm just not sure that what she did achieve has been built upon, or at least by the breakout artists. I'm sure there is a massive hip-hop underground there and so many acts, hopefully acts that will be brought to your attention at some point, are taking those and trying to build upon it. But what I would suggest is they're not, or they don't seem to be getting the same amount of coverage and publicity. And why is that? Because the system has not changed enough to reward the people that are an actual threat to the system. It's changed enough to accommodate foul-mouthed women who are in touch with their own figures and sexuality and body positive, but it's not changed enough to accommodate foul-mouthed women who are in touch with their own sexuality and pose an actual threat mm-hmm. to that system. Mm-hmm. I wonder how much of it is like, also as a generation, that literally as a generation ago, um, as as the memory of Biggie faded and she was seen as legit because of him, you know, because of her association with him and the fact that she was... In, in the same class, certainly as a, as a lyricist, if, if nothing else, as the memory of him faded, and as you know, as time went on, and the style of music changed fundamentally as well, and, you know, the thing that he was about vanished. Um, I kind of wonder if she maybe struggled to retain relevance as a result of that as well. You know, because things are moving so fast, and you, you're maybe stuck in the one mode, and maybe you don't really know how to build upon your initial message well, in a modern way. Tinoir made it a really good point right at the start of her argument, though, like the optimal female hip-hop figure is late 20s, mm-hmm. never past yeah. 40. Yeah, Kim, Kim did, made the carnal sin of going getting past old. 40. <laughs> getting old. Getting old. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, that's a really, really key criteria. And that's also one of the biggest signs that something is still not right. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Because plenty of guys continue to be successful hip-hop, hip-hop acts well into their 40s and into their 50s. Mm-hmm. That's not the case with the female hip-hop acts. There's something interesting to be said about just, I guess, female artists in general, aging out the game as well, you know. And um, it's, it's a good way mm-hmm. to pull the, the fucking wool away from your eyes and say, wait a minute, is, is this, has this actually changed? Because why can't potentially the world's best rapper, a woman whose album has been referred to by some journalists as the best hip-hop album of all time, why can't she still have a credible career in this day and age? I mean, I'm, I know she still has a career, but she's not really considered to be a relevant current act is that a function of her age and is that in itself a meta kind of function of the fact that the culture is basically saying all oh, right she's too old for this now let's get another young empowered woman into her space it's pretty mental to think that there's nobody that's hit the zeitgeist quite as hard as her since she kind of vanished right it's taken up until now to like Nicki Minaj well Nicki Minaj I guess she popped up in 2011 really you know she's been gone for a while um, but yeah it, it took clock's a clock's ticking Nicki 
Yeah, <laughs> Dicky Minaj. Um, but it's hard, it's it's weird to see that, isn't it? To see that. I feel like Nicki Minaj's image keeps changing, and I don't yeah. know to what extent that is engineered mm-hmm. by the media yeah. and the music industry. And mm-hmm. um, I feel Lil Kim was not more consistent, but less less apologetic about her style and her sexuality and her lyrics mm-hmm. and her life decisions. <laughs> well, I guess she was she is quote unquote legit now. If I haven't actually been in jail, so I don't think that'll ever happen to any of the any of the artists you spoke it's about. It's career but, gold, you know. But like yeah. that's that's an important. Um, argument um, in hip-hop in general like mm-hmm. authenticity and in this particular kind of hip-hop yeah, yeah. for sure uh-huh. yeah gangster rap especially and that's what Feminista Jones was kind of getting at is like she, she's about it do you know what I mean she's actually about what she's talking about mm-hmm. you know and I guess that's maybe that kind of underlines again like Tiana War's argument it's like well they're not really about it they're just talking about it but they ain't actually about it you know because yeah. Cardi B used to be a sex worker she used to be a stripper you know and I guess you could argue she was about it but she's no longer about it you know what I mean and it's yeah it's weird how I guess there's still, I think there's probably still a large part of those artists that still want to try and capture that conservative crowd which is a big crowd in America mm-hmm. as well yeah like that's a shame it. though because that is so catered to white standards of what is womanhood and black feminine studies and an important author said that and many black female performers have cultivated an image which suggests they are sexually available and licensed. And black female sexuality is stereotypically represented as inherently abnormal and excessive. Mm-hmm. And that's what Lil' Kim and contemporary hip-hop artists play up on. Mm-hmm. Um, but they contradict themselves and they want to cater to that idea of purity. Yeah, um, it's, that, it's that pulling back from the edge. Yeah, well, yeah you know. wide purity. Mm-hmm. Um, white purity that's yeah. a, that's a well thing. no it's no. a scary thing you say isn't it <laughs> but it's, it's probably that, that, there's part of that appeal there's going to I mean I know I'm saying that's kind of jokingly but you're right it is, there is a like a white purity a, a bit of puritanism about it you know the fact that you know that's still attainable for everybody mm-hmm. because they're, they're a bit chaste basically you know what I mean they're not they ain't hoes basically you know to hit that fucking button <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it that's more like it yeah. burn out <laughs> But yeah, I think, I think you're totally right there, Marissa. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. Uh, do you want to look at the actual album? Yeah, so before we got into the record, just a few things about hardcore and how it's kind of been appraised since. That was actually in the uh, Rolling Stone album guide, which is great. Um, hip-hop had never seen anything like her. Um, she single-handedly raised the bar for raunchy lyrics and hip-hop, making male rappers quiver with lines like, you ain't licking this, you ain't sticking this, I don't want dick tonight, eat my pussy right. Riding on the <laughs> Say wind. that again, Mark. What? No, just not. that last one. Eat my pussy right. Eat my pussy right. <laughs> if you don't make that into your ringtone, you're not a yeah. real fan of the show. I could do it in a deeper voice if you want. Just, just yeah, PayPal me ten. Say it louder for the people in the bag. <laughs> um, but yeah, she was riding in the wing of Biggie's Ready to Die, and Jay Z, who's on this record, has has debut album coming out as well. But it's basically Rolling Stone essentially saying that she was able to demand service from R. Kelly, Babyface, and nearly quote unquote every R and D dick in the field, basically making all the men right realise that there is actually women out there that can go toe to toe with them and say, "I don't even need to step in the street to battle you. I'm just doing this fucking record, you know." That R. Kelly dick—that's a valuable commodity. Very much. Well, she's too old. She was too old, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> and Days and Confused magazine basically saying that. 
there was, a, there was a lot of speculation around the fact that there was a lot of her stuff ghostwritten by Biggie, but she went to discredit, discredit these rumours, and she's since maintained, like this t- when this article was written, a flawless track record, and I would probably agree with that, maybe not musically, but lyrically, not much had changed when Biggie left the picture, mm-hmm. you know what yeah, I mean? I, yeah. don't, I don't think that's... that's that exactly, we have scrutiny. a large data set by mm-hmm. which to, to measure that, yeah. Yeah, but... Days and Q's say Kim's USP was simple but delivered with later precision. She outfilled the male rappers at every turn. Hardcore is an unchained blockbuster of muck, a rollicking ride through a mire of lewd lines and laugh out loud raunch. Sounds like a carry on film. <laughs> yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah, hang on a sec. So, yeah, let's talk about the record. You first. Okay. So, it starts off with intro in A minor. Yeah, may I help you? Yeah, uh, can I get a small order of? Popcorn and a, a, a large order of butter and just like a lot of napkins, please. Butter. Anyway, um, would that be all? Yeah. Uh, that'd be six ninety-five. Which I think is fucking hilarious, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> to skit with a guy wanking, right? Over her. Which I think now that you take it in the context of her like not being comfortable in her own body and comfortable with like how her own how she looks, I mean that's a that's a pretty baller move. You know, it, it sets a tone for her brand of humour and her brand in general, like straight away. It's explicit hip hop the likes of which nobody had ever really seen before and that's what you're getting straight away, the first mm-hmm. thing and every single time you hear it, it's so painfully fucking ridiculous, it just makes me laugh out loud. <laughs> Start as you mean to go on. Yeah, totally. Um anybody else want to add into that or Wait, I was going to add to that. It's <laughs> a thing. It's it's a very fitting intro, yeah. and it really lays the foundation of what's to come. So if you're if you find the intro of putting chances are you're not going to like the rest of the album yeah, and vice yeah. versa. It, yeah, it's a litmus test, really, isn't it? Yeah. And <laughs> um, it, it start, the album starts properly with a uh, big mama thing, which is very of the era. It has that funky, almost R and B vibe, which is very typical of the gangster rap kind of G funk era. You gotta go alone. Chorus has got Lil C's in it from Junior Mafia. Um, and I think together, that pair and that chorus is really good. It's a really, really good hook, actually. Is this a track with Jay-Z? Yeah, I was going to say. So, yeah. so I've not really spent a lot of time with Jay-Z, so it's re- for me, it's really interesting to hear. Neither's Beyonce. Yeah. <laughs> apart from on that, apart from on those two tours they did together. Um, he, had, uh, he had separate trailers. <laughs> um but it's, it's really interesting to hear early career stuff f- from um, from him for me. He's, I guess, next to Kanye West, probably the biggest rapper in the world, if not one of the biggest, uh, yeah, probably one of the biggest black artists in the world. Does he steal as much stuff as Kanye West? I think he writes. Oh, so that's the thing. That's the thing about Jay Z is like he is. He's very well known for being fucking like shit hot on the mic, like freestyle for days. Like he's definitely not a plagiarist like Kanye West. <laughs> he's the exact opposite, if anything else. So yeah, I think his flow, the entire flow of this record is like I said, it's sort of like one upmanship. And on this in this song, Kim's essentially saying, "Look, women, we can own our sexuality as well as the guys can, and often quite aggressively." Yes, yes, well, I got 
ask how many times I wanna come. Twenty one and another one and another one. Uh, the, the tune's more fun than I expected It's kind of playful mm-hmm. It almost is like a Jazzy Jeff sort of thing Yeah, something like G-Funk thing Yeah, yeah you know, that was that was quite prominent, you know And um, that was very much a West Coast thing Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, like, pioneered G-Funk, you know Which is astounding, it still lingers around it And hip-hop to this day And it's followed up in no time Let's go which has got Puff Daddy, Sean Coombs, Speed, Diddy, Diddy, whatever the fuck you want to call him, he's on this track. Creme de la creme. Yeah, la creme de la creme. Fuck man, his low energy rapping is so boring. Yeah, I've never really got it man either, <laughs> to be honest. Um, it's it's weird because Biggie's also on this track and he's also got a, a quite a low energy flow, but there's something infinitely more compelling about it, the way that he delivers it compared to Sean Puff Daddy P Diddy Diddy. Like I always like, viewed him more of um, a successful producer. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I think that's fair. I, I suppose he's more of a businessman than more than anything else, right? Because mm-hmm. he was a producer. He had the record label Bad Boy Records as well, and I guess he maybe just wiped part a bit of the pie to you know as a, as an artist. Do you mean pie isn't food? It's with, in this episode, we have to be careful. Yeah, that's ambiguous. Yeah, um, this song's obviously a lot less upfront. Than the last song is musically, uh, but the lyrics are no less rude and no less explicit. Um, the production, one thing I really like about this record overall is the production, the beats, the samples are just crystal clear. Like it sounds like a million bucks this record. Give that ass a smack. Bet your man won't do it like that. Can't work the middle. Plus his thing too little. Let me grab your tatas, do the cha cha, make the screen papa. You the best dada. Now watch mama. And I really enjoy the there's a harp that runs from the left channel to the right channel, which I find quite quite a fun little addition. I don't think this this song is wholly serious in her in her part. I'm particularly fond of it when she talks about drinking babies. <laughs> I think it's just fucking hilarious. Um, you just picture it. Yeah, totally. You know. So yeah, basically, I'm going to swallow your load. Is what she's saying, and it's a really good way of doing it. That's a, a really long outro though, which I found a little great. Can I can I mention something I found really smart mm-hmm. um, in this song lyrically? Um, mm-hmm. When she called out women like Demi Moore and Persons Diana, and I'll call them out, but I've referenced mm-hmm. them, um, who obviously um, exemplified elegance and stardom and riches at that time, and she drew parallels between herself and those women. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of captures that essence of third wave feminist without necessarily calling Lil Kim a third wave feminist um, how it was about the eradication of um, white elitism mm-hmm. and say kind of tried to prove that hey if I can do it then all of us black women can Yeah, we can be in the same conversation alongside those women there's no better way to eradicate white elitism <laughs> than driving it into a bollard in a Parisian tunnel <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's, it's actually it's quite a weird coincidence that um, uh, Tupac, Biggie and Princess Diana were killed by the same guy as well. <laughs> <laughs> the next track's spent a little dough. Call me sunshine, pussy spread like the rainbow. Spectacular, miraculous, I practice for a living like the Buddhism. Which is just smooth as silk. Her flow is really groovy. Is Christina Aguilera in this? No, cause oh, no, she would have been like is fucking she? ten or something. <laughs> I don't know. Like, it's so fucking weird. And I thought she said Xtina. Then the voice that came in after it was like, "What? 
fuck how old is she yeah she yeah. wouldn't have not have been around at this point man um, her flow is really groovy I like this it's really quite sensual even when she's talking about she's basically leaving the guy high and dry for not coming to see her in jail Another, a, a narrative song basically because I don't think she's never been in jail at this point It's actually a really nice riff on how a lot of male rappers are rappers are all about banging lassies and just bailing. It's like her repost to that. It's like I'll just I'll just fuck you and bail then, why not? But it's also got a little bit of a Bonnie and Clyde thing going on in it, which I think is quite perceptive storytelling in that regard. Like I ain't living for you, I'm the queen, I don't need to take this. And the fact that the main riff uh, sample is from Fifty Ways to Leave Your Lover is actually a really cool little addition because it's a song about leaving the guy who wouldn't come see you in jail because you went to jail for him because you were loyal to him and he wouldn't come see you and now he's fucked off with somebody else um, I just feel like when you you read the lyrics this it sounds like it was written by kids Love ain't got shit to do with me and you or the fofo under the pillow putting the dildo I like to play while I'm working and that's for certain keep jerking I ain't done with you Lights, cameras, curtains. In a second, the show begins. Invite your family. <laughs> I just don't get it. It's so fucking stupid. Well, stupid or fun? Stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Hit that button. <laughs> Hang on. Right, it's fucking the goose is getting tired. The next song, the next, the next, I'll say song, it's not a song. The next thing's a skit, take it. Bag, okay. Okay. Yeah, that bitch on my dick, man. She see my bins rolled all on my dick. Fuck that bitch. Yo, I'm gonna knock her ass. Like, yo, yo, you should fuck her home, girl. Home, I want to, home. I want to, man. But the bitch was some eating pussy shit, yo. <laughs> yeah, I'm not trying to fuck uh, with that kid. Nah, um, it's basically a bunch of guys talking about who they want to fuck. Um, I don't really know what the point of this is here. Although I think it's quite interesting is that there's two skits that bookend two songs. Maybe there's some kind of narrative throughout these four tracks. I'm sure um, a lot of narrative thought was put in it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that I, I, th- I think that's borderline racist, mate. Do you know why that might be? Because this song is not for you. Yeah. Because that's how men talk to each other. But to us, this is educative. Mm. Uh, that's an interesting take. There we go. There is something to be found here, and it, it took a woman's insight. Of course, uh, it is, mate. But like, would you would you agree that men, not necessarily you, but men in general, do talk to each other like I mean, that like, when women are not around? If you're dealing in yeah, if you're dealing in caricatures, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a fitting kind of play on that. What did uh, what Donald Trump call it? Just locker room talk. Locker room talk. <laughs> yeah, it's getting over. I suppose it's kind of what it is. Um, crush on you is. Low C's comes back in this. His flow's pretty good, actually. Oh, check it. Yo, I be buying V's, so all my girls be eyeing C's. Coming backstage, dying to get please. You got me, I rock the Versace and linen. Why you spot and grinning with a bunch of foxy women? Why you speed? Um, Biggie's on the hook. Um, I don't know if that's a sample or if it's actually him. It probably is actually him. This is by some distance the most streamed track on the album. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, uh, it's, I think it was a single. I think that's probably why. It says Burley on the song. Yeah, she is. That's what I was going to say. Um, but I think this song kind of works in tandem with the last track, and that's a bit in the last guys. Mm-hmm. It does almost feel like a Junior Mafia song because she's on it so little. I don't even know if she's singing the hook. It's kind of weird. Um, the song's alright. It's kind of like 
there's some nineties R and B shit coming through in it. Maybe she was like rolling the joints. So it's um she was being pregnant at the end of that album and she couldn't finish some of the songs. Oh um, really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. So um she just couldn't finish yeah, that one. Well she was essentially sick and had to go away and clear her head because she was pregnant. Um yeah. And the next song's drugs, so I really like the beat on it and I think her flow's really good too. Biggie's on the hook again, um, but she, she totally nails it. Um, it's just quite typical of hip hop of the era, actually, probably of a lot of hip hop since. It's like talking about weed and drugs and how good it is, and out of its time for sure, you know. Snoop Dogg was obviously a big hang, but. Uh, <laughs> what year Radiohead release a song about that? <laughs> please, please do. <laughs> She's getting the blow to Tom York. And then scheming is the other side of take it, I guess, is what the women say about the dudes that they want to fuck. You know, let's set that nigga, nigga up. Nah, yeah. you, only way you get that motherfuckers with some ass, yo. That's what I'm thinking. Suck his dick. He probably I, like, he like menage toi. <laughs> Run them pockets, right? You know. After that motherfucker be sleep or some shit like that, right? Yeah. yeah uh, same caricatured version, I suppose. See, yeah, yeah. I guess it is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Queen Bitch is very gangster rap. It's kind of going over a lot of the same ground as drugs, actually, although it's much more focused on fashion and how much money she makes. There's a lot, there's a lot of braggadocio on it, which is very, very like the era. Um, it's got a really nice beat, though, and it's kind of downbeat. It's got a bit of soul to it, which I quite like. And the trumpet actually gives the song its hook, which is pretty cool. It was at this point that I realised I would like to hear a little Kim tune on daytime radio. You know when they don't, rather than doing the beep, they actually just sometimes put a gap. And can you imagine listening to a Lil' Kim tune on daytime radio where it'd be like... Or a- any rapper, mate. Any rapper. Fantastic. I'd love to hear that. Um, it's got one of my favourite lines. Is that you, you picked it up earlier on, Chris. Is I've got buffoons eating my pussy while I watch cartoons, which I think is just hilarious. I picked that up before we started recording. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this this is... Yeah. Is it? It's hilarious, is it? I think it's funny. I mean, it sounds like a good time. I think it's funny. I think it's like, a lot of it's funny. Maybe this is one of the things with me and rap and hip hop and... Who's got it? Get, get I don't want comedy from my music. If I want comedy, I'll fucking put on a fucking comedy record. Like, I, I don't understand why I would want to listen to music and be... Like just laughing my ass off. Why the fuck do you want to listen to music and listen to jokes? Because it, I mean, hip hop in and of itself is often quite absurd and outrageous. I don't think mm-hmm. it's all supposed to be funny, but I do think you know if you're really good with words and you make a funny wordplay, then fucking chuck that shit in there, man. If you're you want people to feel more than just like, oh man, I wish I was as rich as. If then. you ain't licking the butt, then you ain't getting it. Fucking, that's, that's really funny. What do you mean if you're really good with words, <laughs> man? <laughs> What part of that was really good with words? Oh, you okay? Yeah, cool. Bring out one example of a whole fucking record. Nice, <laughs> nice, nice, nice work there. I mate. Have to try so hard. No, and like yeah. Mark and your defense, I just think like it's realistic, <laughs> but in a very exaggerated way that makes it funny. Yeah, I mean, um, these people are 
these nothing people. better than trying to explain a joke is there I just don't want that from music I think that's one of the things about it that I just don't get I'm like why the fuck do you want to fucking laugh so it's going to be funny the first two times you hear it maybe anyway but they'll often juxtapose it with songs which are about horrible shit yeah. um, like being in the streets being in jail you know and your, your best pal getting shot or whatever I think I think it's good to have a levity when a lot of these records are long and often pitch black. That's not a terrible argument. Um, and Dreams is I'm not really I don't really know if I like this song to be honest, but it's um, <laughs> mental because I actually wrote oh, I quite like this one. Um, <laughs> Did you know it was not a Fleetwood Mac cover? <laughs> it's not. No. This isn't the Fleetwood. Oh, fuck um, I'm sorry, I, you guys. know. Give me all the rhythm and blues singers And rock the shots of the liquor Ooh, it makes me come quicker Rub it on your belly like jelly R. Kelly You think you're balling but your body's cold Street falling I do think it's funny to, to hear her talking about all the lads she wants to bang. Um, D'Angelo, Prince, Archie. Uh, your personal favourite, yeah, Mark. They're all on here, you know. Ah, uh, that fucking wicked that buzzer yeah, as well. Yeah. But yeah, it did not, has, has not aged well. Yeah. I, I, this musically, though, I think this sounds to me like a cool poker track. When I was a kid, I, I remember buying like a fucking the Fuji's album, for example, mm. and we used to play poker in my folks' house when they weren't there, and we'd put on tracks and music that we thought were poker appropriate. Mm-hmm. And to me, this feels poker appropriate. Really? Yeah, I don't know why. There's um, another really great line in it, which is they'd be sucking blackberry molasses out molasses, which just makes me laugh every single time. Fucking absolute master of the English language. Yeah, amazing, man. Um, go see a Shakespeare play and come back to me, right? <laughs> you know, getting head by the Harlem Boys Choir again, just ridiculous, really absurd, you know. It's raunchy as fuck. Um, it's actually got a really nice funk sample, Think About It, by Lynn Collins, which has actually been sampled on 3,000 songs. It's one of the most sampled tracks of all time. What? Seriously, look it up on whosampled.com. It's insane. Even R.E.M. sampled it on Radio Song. So many fucking different artists and different genres. This one track. Uh, it was actually quite funny because when you look at so many rappers and artists have used that, it's like the fucking laziest shit. <laughs> now it's just like the laziest shit to go to. Instead of going create digging and finding a cool sample, people just whack out this shit and chuck out a track. Um, Almost becomes a meme though, doesn't it? Yeah, pretty much, mm. yeah. Um, like, the, like the drum beat from uh, Grandmaster Flash and the, the Furious Five. There's the drum sample that he first sampled for an old 70s funk record used still to this day and it's so iconic it becomes like a meme at, at that point and yeah speaking of being one I said there being pitch black Mafia Land is another gangster rap song it's all about life in the streets and tells a story of basically being in the streets being in a gang all the shit you gotta do to stay on top in the mafia's land where there's one wolf and one clan 
Yes, man, stay surround us like steaks and pans. All I wanna be the man. Right hands, wash the left hands. Loyalty's priority in this fan when life's initiated. Ain't no giving it. Uh, this has got a darker production. I mean, it's more interesting as yes, a result. It's more aggressive and the narrative of the song is quite strong as well. So it's like I say, sometimes I think you need to trade that off because listen to a fucking biggie, a biggie album or a two-pack album and man, no one's smiling at the end of that record, even if there is funny shit in it, you know. Um, it's got a good beat, it's got a really good synth sample, it does, it does sound quite modern, yeah, um, and it's got a slightly sinister, aggressive feel, which I quite liked. We don't need it. Um, fuck that. Yo, I want some pussy tonight. I think I want to fuck my bitch Goldie and shit. Goldie supposed to have some money for me and shit. I think about fucking her and go fuck my other bitch that live in fucking pig houses. I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. If you, t- I said, you know, I've said to you, if you didn't, if you didn't laugh at this tune, you're just not listening to this music in the right way. The intro is so moronic, I can't even fucking comment on the rest of the song. I think it's legitimately funny, man. Lil Kim's fundamentally talking about a really underwhelming sexual experience and it's quite funny because it's calling out guys who are shit in bed when all guys talk about is how they're great in bed and how they just want to, how they just want to fuck women. Let's truly flip it. What about if guys start calling out women that are shit in bed? I think that let, let me get all men's rights in this. I think, like, let, let's start a tune I think with how bad man. a woman was in I think you should do that, right? But the beat should be the, the, the honk. <laughs> <laughs> we'll use that Grandmaster Flash drum beat yeah. with that fucking honk sound yeah, and then me rapping about women being crap in bed because that's something that apparently I would know something about. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I think it's a really funny song. No one was saying shit at that time. Even though even you might find it dumb, you might find it crass, it was definitely lewd. Um, and any style of music. Also, drinking nuts is just a funny way of saying swallowing your load again. Come on. Nice. Um, not tonight. It's, it's got a really funky, quite a, quite a slick beat, actually. I know a dude named Jimmy used to run up in me. Nighttime, cause he drunk off the Hemi and Remy. I didn't mind it when he fucked me from behind it. What? Felt fine. Especially when he used to grind it. He was a trick when I sucked his dick. He used to pass me bricks, credit cards, and It's quite sparse, that one. And it it's got a really interesting backing synth sound in it. Mm. Yeah, the sex was whack. He was a four-stroke creep. It's quite, you know, it's quite funny. Um, that's a really nice couple, actually, I think. She's, again, she's just tearing down shite guys in this track. I know she's just expanding on the, the entire theme of the record. I quite liked if sex was record sales, you'd be double glass, which is a, a reference. Yeah, it's to, been picked out by uh, a few people as a good a reference to being gold. Uh, you'd be gold. You're so shit you don't be selling gold records, not platinum records like me. And then the bit when she talks about the guy phones her and she's like, "I thought your ass was sleeping. That's why I didn't phone you back because <laughs> you were so shit. You just fell asleep." He's quite well observed, you know. Um, and then another skip player haters, which I think is I don't understand why this tracks in the record. It's just guys slagging her. But yo, on the real though, the bitch do be having some cheddar and the bitch be rocking some ice. You know what I'm saying? I be seeing her floating with little niggas here now and then. You know what I'm saying? With the little bitch ass mafia? Yeah, the little faggot ass niggas. You know what I'm saying? I swear to God, Dan, if I ever see them niggas rolling down. And then it ends with Fuck You, which is a song I actually didn't like. Bell need no brown now for shooting up a townhouse and him stay kids fled. Rumors was dead. No 
Because <laughs> I think this is the best one on it. Really? <laughs> uh, honestly, I, it. Uh, I have that here. Yeah, best tune. I don't on think it. it fits in the album at all. It doesn't. No, you're right, but it's still a good song. Mm-hmm. See, you mentioned DJ Shadow. This, this has a kind of more Bristolian sound yeah. to me. Like Sodomy, Mama proud of me, cause I stopped killing niggas for free. The ant clowns wearing coats, snorting niggas love me. I keep my pussy fresh like Dougie. Watch the show as my flow bubble over like Moses and Crystal. So it's got this interesting metallic kind of effects noise in the background and stuff. I thought it was actually quite compelling that one. I think the reason I didn't quite I didn't like it is because in the lyrics they drop a hard F and I'm, I'm not a fan of that. So yeah, and it's got the aggressive gangster rap thing going on. How Maybe legitimate do you think that element is, like gangster rap in Lil Kim's music? I think she's definitely going to be influenced by it, given that Biggie is like the executive producer. Mm-hmm. Biggie and Biggie and Puff Daddy were the executive producer on the records, and and she was around Biggie and the Junior Mafia were involved with. Some of that, some of that, that shit as well. So, I don't know if she was ever actively a part of it. Although she'd certainly seen some quote unquote action earlier in her life as well, in in terms of like having to run drugs and stuff. Did like she go to prison for money laundering? I think she was. I think she was in uh, in court for money laundering. But I don't know if she went to prison for it. Is she not? I don't know. You could be right, but uh, maybe she flipped. Maybe she flipped. Yeah, that would not. That'd be very unbecoming. Wouldn't that it? would not go down well. <laughs> so, any any final thoughts on it? Uh, the album as mm-hmm. a whole. Yeah, well, yeah, I had a point about female gangster rappers and how they're able to construct a novel kind of femininity. Not, what do you mean? Um, because, like, gangster, yeah, we're talking about hip-hop in general, but gangster rap is differentiable mm-hmm. from other rap music. It makes the use of images of urban life that are often associated with crime and the performances of these narratives help to construct coherency in the life stories of these female gangster rappers. And that's why I asked you, oh, how um, legit do you think those narratives are mm. in Lil' Kim? Because I get the sense that they were legit. And even though I could not relate to them, I still respected her for telling these stories yeah. and constructing these narratives mm-hmm. because she spoke from the heart. Yeah. I mean, or she told it like it is in hip hop terms. Yeah, I do think um, they're legit in the sense that she's, if she hadn't already experienced it, she'd definitely been around it yeah. to know what was going on. This this record doesn't get labelled as being a gangster rap record because it's really kind of not, but you can't help but hear the influence of that music on it, you know, because it's oh, everybody that was around her was part of it. Yeah. Um, My thoughts, I can tell you're desperate to know those. Yeah. Have you got that? You got that honk ready? <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. Um, I I don't have a lot to say about the music on it. I couldn't give a shit about the music on it. In fact, I, t- I mean, being totally honest, I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Thought it was. I knew you wouldn't like it. Was it. Pretty stupid. Mm-hmm. And I've had this issue before with, with this whole school of lyricism. I think it's fucking moronic. Uh, I think it's kind of sometimes quite condescending. The the way it's like praised when it's fucking drivel. I can understand some arguments representing an open-mindedness and a cultural subjectivity, but uh, I also don't think it's actually all that progressive when you patronise people by applauding them for fucking stupidity. And I think a huge amount of this is just fucking inane and stupid. Uh, So put that to one side. What I think is a much more interesting discussion is her as an artist and what she represents Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of achievements, critically, um, in terms of sales, in terms of all that stuff, but also mainly in terms of how probably more than anybody else at that time, she shifted the entire conversation, the the entire Overton window of women in music and in particular in hip-hop and rap so substantially. 
she she couldn't possibly finish that job herself. Nobody could. And I think she should be taking her place in a line of great female artists that get it to a place that represents true quality, equality and tr- true parity and a, a true threat to the establishment. Mm. It doesn't, as I see it in its current manifestation, and I feel bad because I actually feel like a lot of people sort of dropped the baton a wee bit from her. And there's very probably women who are carrying on the baton in the way that maybe would have done this justice. However, I think the system itself has probably, via a series of very complex processes, basically rendered them less famous than Mm. the acts that pose less of a threat to the system itself. I think that's a function that doesn't even necessarily have to be a conscious decision. It just is sort of a result of the way it's set up. If you threaten it, you don't get through it. If you're too shocking to white conservative America, you, you, you sell a bunch of records to 14-year-olds, but you don't go on the TV and then you're, you're you're limited. And shocking doesn't necessarily mean dancing about in a silly way and wearing silly costumes and saying dirty words. Shocking means actually threatening to undermine the, the structural oppression that is inherent in that system. Mm. So I don't think those artists are necessarily getting platformed. I think she made big strides towards actually shaking shit up a bit, but I, I, I don't think her work has been continued. Um, I do think she's really important in that respect though and I imagine at some point maybe one day when I fucking know anything about hip hop I'll actually start encountering acts who are doing justice to that real push for change Yeah, so for me she goes in and this is how she goes in, she goes in on that basis. As a record, as a piece of music it's fucking crap but that's purely because I am a card carrying (laughs) honky I was going to say um one thing that kind of jumped out at me there when you were talking is that uh, you think that she's, obviously you were just saying she's done a lot of work to kind of flip the script, but a lot of the work that she'd done happened because, precisely because of the content on the record. What do you mean? So like, people were paying attention to her because of the rhymes and because yeah. of the, you know, because of the lyrical content and because of that. Uh, no, I think a, a lot of people paid attention to her because she managed to combine the shock value with actual proper tangible talent at like a level of ability that was relatively not not maybe not peerless but certainly ahead of the competition and so that's where I think she made real strides in sheer ability mm-hmm. and the quality of her delivery and her talent. You know, whether or not I like how she used that, the way she chose to manifest that talent. I mean, there's great guitarists whose music I don't want to listen to. Mm-hmm. They've they've pushed the, the entire art form on. I think she pushed it on with that incredible conv- combination of being talented and provocative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I totally respect that. I just don't want to fucking listen to it. Mm-hmm. I just wish that that had been carried on. But I understand also why it's not been, and I don't think that's anything in any way her fault. I don't think it's the fault of the women who are trying to. I think it's the fault of the system. And there's too many people encouraging the stuff that's non-threatening or, you know, superficially, veneer of liberation. Threatening that they can control, yeah. basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, th- I do think, like, in that bubble, um, at that point in time, she created a counterculture um, which was positive, not groundbreaking, but positive nonetheless, like, mm-hmm. you know, flipping the meaning of words like um, hoes and bitches, um, even amongst other female rappers. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mostly, for the most part, I agree with you. Um, well, I picked this record because of the t- when, I, when, I, when I first, when we first mentioned this, when I first mentioned this all those months ago, 
I wanted to get into it because it was I, I thought it was a really good example of something from that era which is a very important year in hip hop and hearing something a bit different. And I still think it is quite different, different enough for me to still maybe not stand behind that argument as much, but I would still say that it was an eye opening record at the time and it is still to this day a little bit. Um but as as I did the research um, and and kind of dug more into her and, and more of it, more into her records. I started to realise that man, she's just a fucking great rapper, man. Right, and that's that. The, it, it's very much become for me, you know, through, through doing the research and getting engaged with this artist, that she should be in that conversation of the top rappers of all time. Period. You know, I, I think that yeah, she may be, she may always make it into the top five, the top three, the top two. She might even be the best female rapper of all time between her, Lauren Hill, Missy Elliott. Queen Latifah and I guess all, all the other ones we've mentioned, MC Light, Sharrock, uh, I think all of them are probably going to be in and around that conversation. And Miss Elliot and Lauren Hill have certainly sold more records than her and are arguably more popular than her, even if their legacy is, and their legacy probably lasted a little bit longer than hers as well, in terms of relevance, I suppose. And they're also great rappers and they're also never in the conversation. Um, but for me, out of a lot of them, Lil Kim, I think, is just the one with the most raw talent. And it comes through really clearly in this record. You know, she's her flow is like she sounds like a seasoned pro on her first record. Do you know what I mean? She she sounds like she could go toe to toe with the guys in a in a cipher and a freestyle. You know, and I think that the, her wordplay, you know, the way that she picks words and her rhymes, I think are pretty. You know, for that time, it was quite rudimentary compared to the to how it's evolved now. There's definitely better rappers when it comes to. Uh, their pen, shall we say, you know, like w- what they can write. Um, but back then it was still fairly new territory and she was nailing it, man. And I think she should be up there with some of the best rappers of all time and she's never in the conversation. That's why I think she's unsung, you know, because she she's great. At, she's really talented at, at all the key components that make you a good rapper. She has them all in spades and continue to prove that for years and years after the fact. I think well. to call back to some of the, the the observations we made right at the very start, fuck female album this, female single that. She's just a fucking great rapper. Mm. Doesn't matter that she's female, she's just a fucking great rapper. She's great at that craft. And that alone, I think, is partly why she's got such a big reputation. But you're right, it's under-acknowledged. Mm. So... That's my case. People feel free to agree or disagree. Um, let us know in the comments what you think of our attempts here to try and not be cis white people about it. <laughs> so you know what comes next. The Nexus. The Nexus. A complicated series of connections between different things. The Nexus. The Nexus. Did you always call it the Nexus? It was used to be called the Dave Grohl Nexus, and then Dave Grohl was... Mark destroyed <laughs> Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl can't get a job these yeah. days. He just He's like going around with his CV, <laughs> asking at fucking G1 venues, <laughs> do you need any KPs? I'll, I'll scrub sick up of the steps, mate. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll lick it up. I don't care. Mm-hmm. I just need to pay my rent. And it's all because Mark took a fucking sledgehammer to Dave Grohl's reputation on the last ever Dave Grohl Nexus. And it then became the Nexus. Yeah. <laughs> um, right, okay. So this Sorry, week, yep, yep. and actually I say this week, but when we falsely announced the Little Kim episode, mm-hmm. we also drew 
the Nexus out the tub. And the Nexus we drew was Burke from the kids' show Trapdoor, which I think was made in the UK, and it mm-hmm. showed cool but freaky stop motion animation. Made using these little plasticine monsters. Uh, had a spider thing called Drop, a skull called Boney, a bunch of other characters, and some really weird story arcs. There was the thing upstairs, which was a voice, which sort of like the, the boss or someone that shouted orders that you never saw. Uh, there was the big red thing, which is this ultra freaky thing that even all the monsters and that we're scared of the splund which was like a monster that <laughs> teleported it was super weird and it was part of a bunch of like morning magazine kids shows like mm-hmm. uh, Motormouth I think was one mm-hmm. of the ones that it was part of it's like a little show within a show and it was courtesy of Craig thanks Craig right yeah. I was I was really really going to ask how how do you find these characters how do you decide the who- listeners to the show come yep. up with them then they get added into this tub and then we pick them out the tub you yeah. might even get a shot of that in a minute <sighs> yeah um, and that's actually well, that's actually a good point, Chris. If you've got some mental suggestions or not mental suggestions, but just suggestions for people, boring suggestions. Send us some boring suggestions. Send us just 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 hit us up. Any just, character or person doesn't matter if they're real, fictional, whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have to have some kind of notoriety though, or because it can't just be somebody made up in your head like fucking Aye. Billy the Wig. I don't know. <laughs> 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 who, the, who the fuck is? I just made him up in my head. <laughs> Anyone out there know Billy the Wig? Um, so Lil Kim has recently been in the studio with Cardi B. Um, they've always been quite close. Cardi B is on record as being a fan of Kim's music. Center is quite a large influence. And obviously there's the beef with Cardi B and Nicki Minaj and Lil Kim and Nicki Minaj. In a recent interview on um, the Bet Network's Rap City, um, Kim says she actually feels like Cardi B is a sister to her. Anyway, one of the biggest, the most most famous or most infamous songs that Cardi B's been a part of so far in her career, we've also mentioned that, it was with Megan Thee Stallion and it was WAP. A song that kind of pretty much channels Lil Kim's lewdness. Yeah, Lil, Lil Kim is the, the, the precursor to WAP like yeah. she, she set the balls rolling <laughs> she, did, she did uh, she, The floodgates opened uh, <laughs> WAP caused a lot of controversy Particularly with conservative journalists Bloggers, podcasters Just general wanks I guess Here's Morgan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of which was of course Ben Shapiro I can't believe it can't believe it, man. He's usually such an open minded young man <laughs> Uh, so can we do his voice? Can we? <laughs> can you do the rest of your Nexus and like Ben Shapiro's voice? I'm not going to try that. Mate, uh, so if you give me some warning, I could have practiced it. But <laughs> hey, let me try. He criticised the song's message satirically. <laughs> I can't do it. No, it's all Mark. It's <laughs> yeah. all Mark. Um, he criticised the song's message, sarcastically stating that this is what feminism fought for. Um, these comments were made in a widely seen video that included Shapiro reciting a plain reading of the song's lyrics, <gasps> many of which he'd self-centred with euphemisms such as "p-word" from the front seat of his car. <laughs> <laughs> um, but can I just say that's where all the best guy in bits car. of male, male thought come from. That's where all the magic yeah. happens. Guy in car, fucking selfie video. Ben Shapiro, university shooters, <laughs> the fucking lot of them. Um, amongst his many criticisms of the song and its lyrics, he also felt the song was implausible. Pussies don't get wet. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. He, he was mocked on, he basically was mocked on Twitter because he thought that the wetness on the scale noted in the song was most likely a symptom of bacterial vaginosis or a yeast infection rather than sexual arousal. It was obviously mocked for this. It was widely circulated online. It took us, quote, 
I'm going to just say it out loud because it's funny. Um, Shapiro's comments, particularly his remarks on vaginal lubrication, were condemned as medically inaccurate by prominent gynecologists. <laughs> yeah, that's another fucking message tone there, vaginal <laughs> lubrication. <laughs> Love it. Um, many social media users also mocked the comment as a self-own, <laughs> implying that, um, as kind of Chris alluded to, that Shapiro was so unfamiliar with vaginal lubrication <laughs> <laughs> due to an inability to satisfy his own wife. So, yeah, um, Ben Shapiro's obviously an arsehole. <laughs> and I actually had a much much simpler, much quicker nexus relating to uh, Can US, which I'll come back to at the end of this. Um, but as soon as I seen this next part of the nexus, I had to fucking had to tie this bow up, I guess. In 2018, Ben Shapiro had a, a feud with Alex Jones. Shapiro called Infowars an untrustworthy news source and called Alex Jones a crazy person, both of which are entirely true. Um, Alex Jones then threatened... Stopped clock. Yep. Alex Jones then threatened to go up to his house with a bunch of army officers and have a chat with them. <laughs> Bogrits and bringing up the original Rambo. We're going to pull your yamaka off your head and we're definitely not anti-Semites. <laughs> um, he, he also threatened to release some... Files on him. <laughs> Files. Yeah, unclear. Um, but yeah, the whole fucking thing was dumb as fuck. Anyway. The dry ass pussy files. Yeah. In 2016, a lecturer called uh, Melissa Zimdars created a list of 150 fake news websites, which then became the fake news, the list of fake news websites that's now on Wikipedia. Yeah. Um, Infowars was of course on there. Um, as was Private Eye, um, which of course took offence to it. <laughs> Because Private Eye is a satire site and not a news website. She, basically, the list called at a site which created fake news for satirical purposes, which has the possibility of being shared as actual real news. I have an interesting addendum to that, though, mm. because actually she was right to a limited extent, because mm. I don't know if you remember the whole Andrew Wakefield MM... Yeah, that, that really... Like, so they, they, were, they were big proponents of that, and then when it turned out it was bullshit, they were like, actually, shit, we got Private Eye were seriously on the wrong mm. side of that story. Yeah, they were basically out there spreading all that fucking anti-vax bullshit for, mm. for a while. And considering they're a left-leaning yeah. satire site, that, that was pretty inexcusable. In fairness, though, I mean, I guess it was published in a Lancet, so I suppose they had that to fall back on, right? Even though it was obviously bullshit. No, but they persevered even after. Like, yeah, they, in 2010, they they, they, they counted 20 fucking 10. Yeah, they were like, we yeah, got it no, wrong. They, no. they, they persevered after the Lancet withdrew it, and mm-hmm. they actually persevered after Andrew Wakefield was stricken off. Yeah. Uh, he lost his licence. They kept going with mm-hmm. it. So, no, there's, there's no getting out of it. They were definitely... It's a Absolutely, big, uh-huh. It's a big blot in their history, and it definitely... At that time, qualified them as a fake news source. So, they, of course, they rejected such classifications, saying that the site contains none of the things it says. It's actually a small selection of stories online are drawn from real journalism publications. And even most, and said, even most college students might recognise that the headmistress's letter that we often publish is not actually from a troubled high school. <laughs> um, so then she later took the website off the list. Um, and Private Eye was created in 1961 by Richard Ingrams, Paul Foote, Christopher Brooker, and Willie Rushton who voiced Burke and many other characters in The Trapdoor. Yep. Uh, and the, the one I was actually going to go down, it was actually similar, similar to the one that we did on Diskin. Once, I, once I, I'd found out something, I, I just I didn't need to research it, I haven't even run it down, but basically Lil' Kim worked with Kanye West, uh, Kanye West worked with Paul McCartney, and um, Paul McCartney's first muse and, and girlfriend in The Beatles was Jane Asher, who's on the board of Private Eye, and Private Eye was started by Willie Rushton. But that's a lot less entertaining talking about Ben Shapiro and what. So, <laughs> no, that, that was a good link. A little treat. Yes, a little treat for anybody that wants to recount that particularly funny <laughs> period in the history of the alt right. <laughs> Marissa, 
um, I only have that nexus. Um, um, I was asked to do um, no no treats. Um, have you have you heard of Arthur Valerian Wellesley? Juan Maimi, I ha- might be mispronouncing. Arthur Valerian Wellesley? Indeed, yeah. What a name, man. He, he was the eighth Duke of Wellington. Obviously. Okay. Um, he was a member of the House of Lords from 1972 until 1999, um, losing his seat by the House of Lords Act. Mm-hmm. Boo-hoo-hoo. Mm-hmm. Um, his son-in-law, as of 2014, was none other than the beloved, question mark, uh, British musician James Blunt. Oh. James Blunt and his wife have two kids. Um, the eldest's godfather is Ed Sheeran. No. And the youngest godmother is Princess Leia herself and my personal favorite nepotism baby, Carrie Fisher. Mm. Um, and how that came to be, um, Fisher had a close relationship with James Blunt um, while working on his album Back to Bedlam in 2003. Um, he spent much of his time at, Fisher, at Fisher's residence um, when Vanity Fair's George Wayne um, asked her if their relationship was sexual. She replied, absolutely not. Uh, but I did become his therapist. He was a soldier. This boy has seen awful stuff. Every time James um, hears fireworks or anything like that, his heart beats faster and he gets a fight or flight. So I became James's therapist and it would have been ethical to sleep with my patient. Mm-hmm. Gary Fisher's parents were Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher, with the former being really close friends with the legendary Elizabeth Taylor mm-hmm. and the latter ending up wedding her. Mm. Um, Elizabeth Taylor was, of course, the world's highest paid movie star back in the 1960s, remaining a well-known public figure for the rest of her life, not less in relation to her eight marriages, which drew a large amount of media attention and public disapproval. Two of these marriages were to the same man. Um, the man in question was the Welsh actor Richard Burton, famous for his Shakespearean roles and widely regarded as one of the most acclaimed actors of his generation. Mm. Richard Burton had a one-night appearance at the Edinburgh um, Film Festival in a well-received parody of the play Luther, which was originally written by John Osborne. Um, the parody in its turn was written by a collective of writers known as the Slopians, who met when attending the um, Shrewsbury Public School. And together they co-founded the satirical magazine Private Eye. And uh, amongst them was, of course, Willie uh, Rushton, um, satirist, comedian, actor and performer who provided the voice of most characters um, in the trap door, including, of course, that of Burke. <laughs> <laughs> so who the they're, fuck they're, did you get from Lil' Kim to that lord? Oh, no, I, I related it to Burke. <laughs> it's it's a beautiful nexus, uh-huh. but we need to... Some, we've got, a, we've got a, a, an end flapping in the wind here. We need to join that Lord Valerian to Lil Kim somehow. Oh, fuck me. I went about it the wrong way. Okay, I completely <laughs> misremembered it. <laughs> no, hey, that's on us. That's on us. But maybe a listener can find a way... There you go. There's homework nexus. Right. <laughs> join for Marissa. Join Lil Kim to what was the first one? Arthur Valerian Wellesley. Al- Arthur Valerian Wellesley. If you can do that, you'll win something. We'll send you. We'll send you a record. We'll send We've you. You could probably do it with Craig Fisher. I think you like, probably do. Fisher comes off as someone that would really enjoy hanging out with Lil Kim. <laughs> I think probably it's, has. It's more probably a, has. It's more of a challenge to the listeners to go to Arthur Valerian Wellesley. Right. Right. Okay. So there you go. We'll send you a digital album or something special if you get that. Right, my nexus, and this is the fucker, we've all ended up on the same final step, and I wasn't going to do the same final step, I was going to go a different way, but anyway, Lil' Kim, uh, along with several other artists, appeared in an episode of The Apprentice, each artist is approached by contestants to donate blah blah blah, and hers went 
to the Elizabeth Glazer Pediatric AIDS Foundation. That mm-hmm. was her, her nominated charity. Elizabeth Glazer was an American AIDS activist and child advocate. She contracted HIV in 1981 after receiving uh, HIV-contaminated blood in a transfusion while giving birth. Like many other HIV-infected mothers early in that pandemic, uh, Glazer passed the virus to her baby daughter, Ariel, uh, through breastfeeding. Ariel was born in 81 and died in 1988. Mm. Uh, she also had a son, Jake, born in 84, who contracted HIV uh, in utero, uh, but has survived, has lived to adulthood through retrovirals and things. Glazer entered the National Spotlight as a speaker at the 1992 Democratic National Convention, where she criticised the federal government's underfunding of AIDS research and its lack of initiative in tackling the AIDS crisis. That speech is considered by the people that are into speeches as one of the truly historic kind of significant speeches of the modern era. Uh, She died of AIDS herself in December 1994. Elizabeth Glazer's husband and the father of her children was Paul Michael Glazer. And Paul Michael Glazer is Starsky from Starsky and Hutch. Uh, And he's also a film director with a slightly patchy track record. He's probably best known for his work in 1987's Running Man, the film that starred Arnie. Uh, But actually, the role of Ben Richards, originally meant for Christopher Reeve, and the film at the time was slated to be a much darker, more sober affair. It's a pretty dark sober affair. Did he direct that? Oh, Michael Glazer. Holy fuck, man. Um, The creators of Running Man uh, were successfully sued by the creators of a film called Le Prix de Danger, which is based on The Prize of Peril, uh, a short story by a guy called Robert Sheckley in 1958 that uh, presupposed reality TV, it called it Thrill TV though, and featured a contestant in a game show being hunted. Running Man was based on a Stephen King story. It was based on a Robert Bachman. Yeah, Stephen King. Uh, Is it Robert Richard Bachman? Yeah. Richard Bachman. Richard Bachman, yeah. Yeah, but uh, it was successfully sued by the makers of that film Le Prix du Danger mm. from 1983 and Le Prix du Danger was based on The Prize of Peril which was a short story by Robert Sheckley. Stephen King, I don't, yeah. I don't know. It, I mean, it, it, Running Man ended up being very different from the short story and it actually ended up being very different from the original Running Man as well mm. once uh, Glazer was involved in it. Anyway, Arnie's classic Terminator was uh, once uh, the subject of The Seven Basic Plots from 2004. It's a book uh, by British journalist Christopher Booker. The Seven Basic Plots are Rags to Riches, such as Jane Eyre, The Quest, Lord of the Rings, Voyage and Return, Gilgamesh, Comedy, Twelfth Night, Tragedy, Citizen Kane, Rebirth, Groundhog Day, and finally, Overcoming the Monster. That's Terminator. Mm Mm-hmm. Brooker, the, the, the author of that book, uh, was a co-founder of the magazine Private Eye, blah, 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 Willie Rushton, blah, 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 Burke and Trapdoor. Burke! And there we have it. Hooft! Oh. Uh, okay, so again, help Marissa out, you win a free album if we can join Lil' Kim to Lord... Lord Valerian. The 8th Duke of Wellington, guys. 8th Duke of Wellington. Yeah. yeah. James uh, Bond's dad. Other homework is you have to get in touch with us with bands the members of whom, even if the band wasn't very successful, have gone on to create these other great series of other bands. Uh, there must be some out there. Must there be has to there. be. Get yeah. in touch with us. Let us know. And last piece of business next week, we are going to cover, just to get things nice and honky again, <laughs> Harmacy by Sebado. There we go. The American indie rock band, mm. uh, in this case from the 90s. And... Marissa, this is your big moment. No, don't You're going to pick it. the Nexus for this, don't. okay? <laughs> don't! Hey. Look at that, you caught it. I did. Okay. 
And the nexus to Sebado will be Sebado. if you can read my writing. Can, can I? She can't read your writing. <laughs> legendary Catman of Greenock. The legendary Catman of Greenock. Yay! That is truly exciting. Do you know about the legendary Catman of Greenock? I certainly don't. You are going to really fucking enjoy looking into that. Is that was by me, wasn't it? Yeah, I said, well, it was by it me. It was by Chris. Yep. Thanks for picking it out could one be of my anyone. choices. All right, that's love brilliant. It. I love it. So, Sebado, the legendary Catman of Greenock. <laughs> fucking excellent. Okay, folks, that was very rewarding and probably slightly cancelled, but I think yeah. I got through it with minimal damage yep. to any sort of reputation that I might have had. One last bit of homework. Like, share, subscribe. <laughs> <laughs>